Precocious young Miss Calloway Impressed some persons pants away His clever conversation started from a magazine And a placard known to all and sundry As a humble understanding Challenged a great actor for his hatred of the Queen Perhaps I lack a sense of humor, but your interesting romance catches me. Um, you know, I, I feel like I feel like all women's content has to be inclusive of feminine identities that are not necessarily female, um, and that's that's categorized by like the wider like a like umbrella term non man. Um, so it's it it always like it's there's nothing that's just for like. I was an awkward little girl and then I was an awkward teenage girl and now I'm an awkward young adult woman. It It's somehow like, it's somehow like women and then like appended onto that, like, you know, some other, like other thing. But, but, but like, but like what kind of, like what, let's, what's an example? So, um, you know, like if you go on like Refinery29 or something and like anything about like sexuality, um, or even about like your own body is sort of framed in this way of like, you know, like if you are a mother or birthing person, and I'm not one of these people who thinks like we shouldn't use a phrase like birthing person, but I also think like for people who identify with like that label, that is a different experience than I am a mother. And all content for mothers is now dil diluted by also the content for birthing people. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I guess that stuff's more like straight up journalism. Like what are like what kind of came to mind for me when you said that there seems like there's a dearth of honest content for women is like how all women's media has to be sort of um like not exactly about girl bosses, but it all has to be either totally triumphant or totally victimhood based. Like either you're like the strong heroine of your own quirky story, which was produced by um, just like reading white teeth several times and then entering into a coma, which is like subtweeting a specific recent graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop who just got a book deal and a TV adaptation. Um, like that's one genre of doing women's literature. Um, and then the other genre is just like writing your sort of tale of woe and sexism um and what i liked about marie calloway and which what made this story seem like totally outdated and like impossible to write now um is that it's a story about kind of a woman who's like kind of fucked up and like transparent about her failures and not actually just like blaming the people around her for the ways in which she sucks you know like, and it, it seems so obviously like pre me too in that way. She, I, she, she pointed this out in a later interview about her work um, where she said that sex is neither empowering nor is it sacred. And I thought that was like, it's a very rare point of view. Yeah, it is. Um, I guess like we should intro introduce this. I mean, you know, so Marie Calloway is like a very young writer, um, horrifyingly close to our own age. And yet she had a book deal a long time ago. What's with that? Um, who wrote this story that I completely ignored at the time called Adrian Brody, uh, which I guess was published in, in the be beginning of 2012. And it's about a young woman herself uh, who writes to this older journalist um, 
and basically says like here's my tumblr here's my writing Taolin likes it I'm coming to New York do you want to sleep with me um and so they get together have a drink uh they have sex uh two or three times and then she's just sort of they like have some pretty good conversations they go to the beach and then she's basically upset that you know she knows that she's not going to be his girlfriend because it also turns out that he has a has a girlfriend which he reveals shortly after they meet um and so during their last bout of sex um I mean, she just gets upset about that. She actually, she slaps him. Um, and then she says something like, I'm never going to connect with anyone. And he says, you know, you're going to connect with someone, but it's just not going to be me. Um, and then he, you know, says goodbye and, and they go their separate ways. Um, and the last line of the story is him walking out the hotel room door, turning back and looking at her and then leaving again. Um, I found this story uh so much better than I expected like which is the way I'm feeling about Taolin right now too like all of this alt lit was kind of too dismissed at the time and Marie Calloway is actually a really good writer she yeah I mean I you know full disclosure she's a she's a friend of mine and you know so I, I'm, I'm coming in I'm coming into this with like a little bit of bias as well but this story is so is so real um you know what what like I found so striking about it, reading it, you know, nine years on, um, was like this, you know, this wasn't my experience at the time because I was a, you know, a, an obnoxious little thumb cell. But, um, you know, even in recent history, I, I, I've had this like same exact experience. So like, you know, crying, like if I lived here, would you date me? Realizing mm -hmm. that there's just no hope. I mean, I actually had a, you know, an almost identical experience, like shortly after I got divorced, um, where, you know, I had a tryst with someone and I just start crying hysterically. And, you know, he's like, what, what happened? Like, what's wrong? And I, and I just like, all I could say to him is if I lived in California. Would you date me? And the answer is like, you know, of course not. You're a special person. Um, and you'll, you'll, you'll find someone, but it's just not going to be me. And I don't know. So reading this story with that in mind, it was just like, what, like, who hasn't had some version of this happen to them? Right. And in this case, what's so interesting is that they're totally age inappropriate. I mean, she's she's 20 in this story and he's 40. Um, and she's, you know, one thing that I loved about this story is that she's really very transparent and honest about the ways that she's excited by that, you know, by what she calls her reverse Lolita complex, you know, it was really striking early in the story when she sees him for the first time across the street when they're meeting in Midtown and, you know, he's bald and he's awkward and he's holding some like awkwardly large shopping bag and she likes that he's awkward. That's what she wanted him to look like. And, you know, and she says to him very upfront early on, you know, how do you feel about the age thing? You know, are you into young hipster girls? You know, she's excited by the idea that he's excited by her being 20 years old. And that was a really, you know, you know, a shocking thing to do. Um, and what I was going to say was also that makes it so much more kind of sad, you know, when she, she asked him, you know, if I lived in New York, would you date me? Because, 
of course he's going to say no. She's 20 years old. He's 40. You know, wouldn't that be weird if he dated her? Like what, like what, if he had said yes, you know, um, would that have lowered him in her eyes? It's like she, she wants an impossible thing. Um, that she probably wouldn't accept, I, I would imagine, if it were actually offered to her. But it made me think of, you know, the experience that I had last year of when this fifty-something-year-old uh, filmmaker, I guess, you know, wrote to me after seeing a little bit of my work, and you know, offered me some footage um, to use, and then you know, we were we were getting a, a drink in New York. And I was basically, I think in my estimation, cheating on my boyfriend with him. But I remember like texting him, feeling this way that Marie Calloway feels in this story, like that I spent, you know, weeks before I did it, obsessing about him constantly. But then as it approached, was just filled with this sort of mixture of like nerves and and disgust and like, what am I doing? And then when I see him, the sort of strange like excitement at the idea of myself being the girl in her 20s that he is sort of cheating on his wife with. Um, because in the story, she cops to the fact that, like, you know, she's disgusted that he's cheating on his girlfriend, but she's also excited by the thought that she's so hot that he'll, like, break his own moral code uh, to sleep with her. Um, and it's just this sort of honesty about the abject and, you know, fucked up, like, ego feelings that go into sex that is just so insanely missing from, like, you know, the Me Too narratives of, you know, I don't know, the the that article about how Aziz Ansari was a horrible creep for, you know, being handsy on a first date and, and you know, and trying to like have oral sex when she didn't want to or whatever, you know, like these sort of this genre of like Me Too personal essay, I feel has replaced the personal essay of the early 2010s. And the Me Too personal essay is just so... um like polarizing and self-aggrandizing and sanitized. And I loved so much the sort of disorderliness that's in this one. And, you know, I read the um, article about porn that's referenced early in this story when she first emails the guy and says, you know, thank you for your essay on porn. Because uh, you, you sent it to me, uh, Inefficient Intimacies. And it was such a beautiful essay. I don't know if you've, you've read it recently. Do you remember it well? Yeah, I, I I revisited it when I it was it was it's so it was so interesting rereading Adrian Brody because it was like I remember when all of these essays were published. I remember uh, BB Ziva. I remember uh, Hipster Runoff. You know, like it was it's so um, I don't know. It was so it was so nostalgic and uh, inefficient recipes too. I know like the scene where they go to the American apparel. I was I was going on a jog with my boyfriend today and I just, you know, finished reading this and I was so excited. Um, I just finished reading it like at midnight last night and I was just so excited to talk about it. And I was like gushing to him about this story. And I get to the part about, you know, the 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 gallery of like uh, photos of herself in thigh highs that she sends the guy. And I say, you know, she's like a 20 year old that wears a lot of American apparel and he's like, I don't understand. I'm like, what? And he's like, I, like, what does that mean that she wears American apparel? I don't understand what that means. And I was like, thinking back to when I was in high school and like buying American apparel t-shirts was just like the most exciting thing in the world. And like the guys in their American apparel briefs with the white piping 
you know, I, I read Marie Calloway's essay about losing her virginity and it just, it made me so nostalgic. Like the scene where the guy walks away from her to get a condom and he's wearing green American apparel briefs. Um, but, you know, to go back to the the essay about inefficient intimacies, you know, he had like, you know, it's an essay about basically like how um, critics of porn are dismissed by just, you know, saying like, oh, this is radical feminism, this Andrea Dworkin, this is, this is Puritan. Um, but actually the critics of um, porn are really onto something. And the defenders of porn are really just equating porn with a certain consumerism and their defenses are just sort of like defenses of capitalism. Like it gives you more choices. Um, it allows you to express your taste. Um, but what porn really does, he says, is like take all of the mystery of Eros out of the realm of Eros and make it, you know, sanitizable, sanitized and like saleable and, you know, just put into little bins like here's your bukkake, here's your gangbang. And like everything mysterious about your drives and your fantasies is taken away and made into a product that can be sold to you. And, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent from Marie Calloway, but like, you know, he had this line that was like something like basically like the essence of love is inefficiency and probably the, the best way for a person to tell whether they're in love is that they're suddenly willing to be inefficient. And that felt so true to me, like the sign that someone's falling in love is that they tweet less or like they sleep in more or like you skip stuff. And um, and I thought, you know, I can understand why uh, Marie Calloway wrote to this writer and wanted to have sex with him on the basis of his articles. And it made me feel a little more sympathy, I guess, for the, you know, I get angry at the fans that write to my boyfriend um, and, you know, basically like hit on him and, you know, want to have sex with him. Like that girl who wrote last year about how she was in a BFA and wanted to have sex with him for a performance, who you thought was Marie Calloway. And this story was just so honest about like p girls do fall in love with artists that they admire. And, you know, he's portrayed in a charming way. He seems charming and smart and sensitive. And like she falls in love with him more deeply. And in all of these you know, not to beat a dead horse, but in all of these like Me Too narratives about women dating older artists, like, you know, like, you know, like in the, like the scandals in the art world, you know, last year, um, those all just like are in complete denial of the feeling of desire that's in the girl, you know, to like realize her, her image of love and spirituality in the guy. Um, you know, I, I feel like, and, and Cat Person had this a little bit as well. Um, you know, I, I, so I feel like in the in the 2010s, we were like hitting at this very complicated thing of like falling in love with masculine ugliness and like accepting men, you know, maybe not in totality, but in this sort of like nuanced way. Um, you know, and Adrian Brody, when she when she notes that like, she really looks at him at some point and realizes that he's attractive. He's not conventionally attractive, but he's that he's attractive, and she she understands it in that moment. Um, you know, there's this this sort of, I guess I don't know, accept acceptance of like the roughness of what it means to be a man that I feel like is completely gone. Um, and you know, in Me Too narratives, but you know, also in more like apolitical romances, it's it's something that I I felt like we were touching on a lot. Um, in 2011, 2012, 2013, and it just sort of disappeared from the media landscape. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's this other point which sets up for the the moment you're talking about early in the story when they're talking before having sex and Adrian Brody 
um, says to Marie Calloway, do you actually find me attractive? And she says, yes. And then in the you know narrative, it says, but I, I didn't know if I actually did. But then she just asks him, do you find me attractive? And he says, of course. And, you know, think about it, like in like a Me Too style narrative, that ugliness would just be demonized, you know, it would just be like this old gross man. And you know what, like the journalist that this story is about, he's not handsome, you know, like, you know what he looks like. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to be honest, I spent several hours this morning, like, watching videos of him looking at photos of him and trying to imagine finding him attractive. Um, and I, you know, I was, I was able to, but I feel like, I feel like something about like the current climate, like even, even men among men, right? Like there's something very unforgiving about appearance now. Well, I think that now it's sort of rewarded in the Twitter sphere for women to just dunk on men for being ugly, right? Like the ugliness has acquired some sort of moral place of like disapprobation. You know, like when there was that article about um, my my lover um, a couple years ago in a in a major outlet. Um, <laughs> You know, pretty much all of the comments on the article were, you know, women being like, this guy is just some ugly old pervert who would want to see this, you know, ugly guy having sex or whatever. Um, and it's just, you know, it's like David Brooks wrote today or yesterday or whatever. Like, when did it become okay to just, you know, insult the ugly? I mean, when I, I'm, I'm more curious about like, when did male attractiveness like in the most like conventional like traditional sense become such a center of importance I mean we've always had heartthrobs and we've always had certain templates for like what is and isn't cute but like I think like the first like conventionally attractive person I pursued and like had feelings for that was in 2019 you know I mean it just feels like it was never it, it was on my radar insofar it's on like anyone's radar right but like it was never something that I valued like it, even in my personal life. And it was never something that I recognized other women valuing either. Like it was supplement, you know, supplemental. It wasn't, it was always like, is he smart? You know, does he have a good job? Is he charming? I mean, there's like it, anything but. Well, I think that male attractiveness has probably been attractive to women for some time. But I think that with Me Too and the subsequent, um, you know, horrors of Twitter, it became like a cool thing for women to do to sort of try to objectify men back. You know, like there's this sort of idea of feminism where you take the worst attributes of being a man and like do it yourself and that makes you a girl boss. Right. So like I feel like you would probably know this more than me, but I feel like there's sort of a trend in online journalism towards having articles that, you know, objectified men and just like casually insulting their appearances or praising their appearances and trying to sort of like be a girl boss who, you know, like drinks beer and eats bacon in that way. Totally. I mean, I, I actually wrote an article about this a couple of years ago, um, critiquing Bumble, uh, you know, mm -hmm. saying that, that the dating app Bumble where the woman messages first is not really empowering. It's just putting you in the, in the male seat that's it's still a dating app it's still tinder it's just branded differently yeah i mean the weird thing about bumble is it's like that's the app where men aren't allowed to talk to you <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but you know, like I was, I was surprised, honestly, like when I, um, read, I was, I was a bit surprised when I saw what the guy looked like, you know, I didn't expect him to be that unattractive. I mean, I mean, he's, he's not that unattractive, but the thing is also that like loving someone or like finding their thoughts beautiful, um, can do like, you know, 50, 60% of, of the work. Right. And like, I thought she did such a good job of capturing like actual sort of connection in this story in a way that is so rare like it's so rare to read actual an actual like dialogue heavy story that's interesting and you know the dialogue was so you know like intellectual and interesting and you know she got criticized for this but I liked this sort of you know intercutting of like the scene where he comes on her face and she smears it around and pushes it into her mouth and then like they're talking about Gramsci you know it was like nice and it made me nostalgic and it captured something and it maybe seems a little bit mannered but like I don't know it felt it felt so real and high level and the story didn't really make me feel condescended to the way almost all fiction, especially MFA style fiction, makes me feel condescended to. Like it's so proud of its own cleverness, you know? I mean, I think like what's appealing about Marie Calloway's writing is also what's appealing about Delicious Taka's writing, right? Like it's, it even though it, it's it's very like ab- abrasive in its sexuality in, in some places, it it like reveals this emotional honesty that seems almost completely absent or like when you do encounter it, it's so like, you know, encumbered by disclaimers and, uh, you know, precious language that it, the actual feeling gets totally lost. Right. I mean, finding fiction that feels like at all honest is so incredibly hard. And I mean, of course, both of these writers write under pseudonyms, like, you know, Delicious Tacos, partly because of how much he writes about wanting to fuck 15 year old girls. (laughs) That's the sound of the children that live upstairs in the hallway. (laughs) I live above a preschool. Um, That's why I close the windows when we record. Um, But, you know, Marie Calloway also writes under a pseudonym. And, you know, I'm trying to think of like another writer that writes with anything like honesty. I mean, to to I think I don't think I told you this, but you know, when we were at that party the other day, um, the editor of that magazine that's publishing my essay about my lover was there and and my lover was talking to him. And, you know, because you know, my essay my lover was saying that it, you know, my essay is basically a personal essay. You know, it's like a mixture of personal essay and film criticism, but it's basically a personal essay and places don't really publish personal essays anymore. So when I wrote it, he just didn't really think that anyone was actually going to publish it. But he said that the reason he liked my essay was because it like went to emotional places that most people don't go. Um, And I felt like Marie Calloway kind of similarly and actually like strikingly similar fashion, um, like went to those places you know, like I felt like the the thing that was maybe interesting about my essay about him was just that I didn't demonize like the older artist for having sex with his fan, you know, um, and here she doesn't demonize the guy for having sex with her. And that's like huge. And just like being honest that she was the one that approached him and stuff like that. And like she was the one that 
you know, solicited him for sex and like urged it on at every turn. And like that she was, you know, in control to a greater extent was huge. Like, you know, I think a couple of pages into the story, they're at this bar and she's, you know, drinking kind of a lot. And it's because she she says she wants to get tipsy so that she has an excuse for flirting. You know, like that was like so unbelievable because now you know like 99% of women in that situation would later on write you know he had sex with me when I was tipsy and that was wrong and he was cheating on his girlfriend and that was wrong but she's not moralistic at all it it feels like um you know being moralistic is almost it's almost a requirement right you know it and I think that's, that's what killed the personal essay not that people got sick of you know, uh, emotional content, but rather like the the cultural climate changed and it wasn't, I'm writing my feelings it's or, you know, I'm writing my experience. It's my experience is being shoehorned into a moral lesson, which is not what Marie Calloway does in any of her work. Right. And it's also sort of anathema to the project of realist fiction that has sustained Western letters for 200 years <laughs> like um you know Gia Tolentino wrote that essay a couple years ago um about the end of the personal essay um and you know she says you know the personal essay seems so obsolete because now that Trump is in power and we have real problems it's sort of like a strained argument you know we no longer distressed we no longer trust personal narrative to tell us the real truth and we should focus or, you know, editors feel that we need to focus on systemic trauma rather than personal trauma. Um, and I feel like the impact of this, and I should say, you know, Gia Tolentino seems a little bit nostalgic for the personal essay. Um, sorry, I think my air conditioner was like, I thought it was a dog. That was a really loud noise. I don't know what that was. Um, but, you know, so Gia, so Gia Tolentino is pretty, like, nostalgic for the personal essay, um, and she's not as moralizing as kind of the editors that she quotes. Um, but I think the impact of this supposed shift to systemic trauma is just that people are still churning out personal narrative because outlets don't actually put enough money into investigative journalism and, like, the media industrial complex is still sustained by girls sitting at their MacBooks. So it's still personal essays. It's just that these personal essays, like you said, have to, you know, sort of remove all, like, personal implication or complication and just force the person basically into the role of, you know, victim or martyr or whatever, and any interactions that they have are symbols of some greater social issue. So like, you know, you can no longer write an essay about a specific thing that happened to you and write about it with subtlety or interest or self-critique. You have to write an essay about being, you know, XYZ ethnicity, XYZ gender, XYZ sexuality, and like scramble those into the combination of the month so that you can get published. And anything sort of emotionally complex or brave um, has to be elided because it makes it more difficult to politicize and be on the right side of the line. Like any complication is just going to lead to you likely not getting published, but if you do, just getting canceled for being uh, non-ideologically pure. I, com- I completely agree. I, I mean, I think that's that's the problem with art right now in general. Um, you know, to to call back to our episode with Paul Scalis, you know, I, I, you know, I retrospectively like disagree with this idea that like all Netflix content is bad or like, you know, not 
not worthy of viewership or whatever but like what it does miss is like this emotional rawness like not every piece of art needs that um but for it to be totally gone from from you know any any media output is it you know it's I think people miss it um and I think that's why Substack does so well like not only like individual Substacks but Substack as a company because it's it seems like the one place where you could just write whatever the hell you want and people are sort of putting themselves out there like they put themselves out there on LiveJournal and to like a lesser extent Tumblr like Marie Calloway originally did yeah and I mean like not to be a loser but um I guess you know it seems like anything thing worth writing about has you know most stuff worth writing about has happened at the level of the individual and like the task <laughs> of writing honestly about the experience of being alive is difficult enough that it's like probably fine and good for every single person on earth to dedicate themselves to writing their own memoir you know like that would probably actually be like good for the planet if everyone wrote an emotionally raw like story of their own life um you know I was thinking actually back to that article about my my lover and, you know, his like ex that I have to, you know, trash all the time. Um, she was interviewed for it. And at that point, I think she was not talking to him and she wasn't acting for him. And she was sort of like regretted her whole involvement with him. Um, but the reporter asked her, you know, some questions and was like, you know, she didn't seem like she really wanted to denigrate him or reject his project. And, you know, she still loved his work. And his ex says something like, you know, blankety blanks uh, work is great art because it captures the feeling of what it felt like to be alive. And that's what great art is about. And, you know, much as I'm loath to admit it, um, it's sort of a beautiful thing that she says that art is about capturing the feeling of, of being alive. I mean, or the feeling of someone else being alive, right? Like we know so little about other people and, you know, these like, you know, there's this writer for um, Gawker Hamilton Nolan who wrote all of these hit pieces about Marie Calloway, like girl micro famed and the oversharers win and some other shit about how personal essays suck. Um, and he says, like, you know, why should we care about a teenage girl's sexual gossip? Like, this is not a symbol of something important for our age. Like, he capitalizes it all sardonically. Um, but you know what? Like, we know so little about how other people feel about sex. Like, we know so, like, absolutely, like, tip of the iceberg about, like, even the people that we're having sex with. I mean, it's like classic Lacan, like there is no sexual relation. Like if we actually knew how other people felt during the sexual act, like wouldn't that just be such a like tremendous insight, like possibly like the only way of actually improving relationships between the sexes. And like that has to operate at the level of the individual, like this sort of like totalizing gender critique is, um, it, it, it's impossible, I guess, without ind individual understanding. I don't know if that like makes sense. No, I, 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 so I have a couple of things to say. One, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. And I, I definitely think there is this sort of like devaluing of like the uniqueness of individual experience. Um, mm -hmm. And we, I think we actively shame it and put it away and, and try to silence it. Um, any any like whiff of nuance. I mean, I I don't want to, you know, I really don't want to sound like a libertarian boomer here, but like, does, <laughs> I mean, it, it really does feel like, you know, even on the left, you can't really talk about 
infidelity in this open way. It's, you know, I've, I've heard, um, I've heard people in my personal life talk about uh, cheating on partners and then sort of like, there's always a friend, like, the, you know, someone's coming forward, saying something deeply personal to a group of friends, admitting something they're clearly very ashamed of. And then like someone pipes in and they're like, well, why didn't you just ask for an open relationship? Um, mm-hmm. Which is, I think, like, sort of where we're at, you know, in, it, it, of course, conservatives are going to have, you know, feel one way about it. The the count, the sort of reactionary countercultural people are going to feel closely to how conservatives feel, I think, sort of as a political statement. And then the sort of mainstream stream left is going to be like, well, you should have just been poly. And there's, there's like, there's some, um, there's some explanation for any sort of aberration of behavior like that, like, you know, open your relationship or educate yourself on XYZ or like, you know, how could you possibly, uh, you know, silence someone's lived experience? I mean, there's, it just, it feels like there's this endless, like, ream of excuses for why people can't fuck up. Um, but I, the other thing I wanted to say was, um, and we could circle back to this if, if you'd like, uh, Hamilton Nolan's, and in fact, all of the Gawker coverage of Marie Calloway's piece, I think, speaks to um, speaks to something that was very of the age. Uh, Gawker didn't like the piece because it sort of fit into the Gawker versus Vice Media feud. Um, I don't know if you, if it's worth me explaining or unpacking, but I think that um, these two these two dueling hipster attitudes that become very obvious in like the wake of this, <laughs> um, in the wake of this story. I mean, you know, you could, you could probably do a whole, you know, podcast series on it, frankly. Has a, has a, are, are you proposing something? Uh, I'm just saying that I, I know a couple of folks from CAA uh, subscribe to this podcast and if you're feeling generous. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, I have an idea for a podcast too that like came to mind after after reading this, like a podcast about sex scenes, you know, like best sex scenes, worst sex scenes, how are they filmed, like who the fuck writes erotica. Did we just um, figure out what our paywalled episodes are going to be? I think that's actually like, I think this would be a great idea, <laughs> actually. Girl. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> I, I'm like um, immediately stoked about that. I love that. You like it? I love, I love this idea. Like the sex scene in The Idiots. Like, can we start with the sex scene in The Idiots? I haven't seen The Idiots. Oh my God. There's a, Well, it's like, well, they're pretending to be retarded, but like they're really like falling in love, but they are like pretending to be retarded because that's what they do. So they can't like say it. It's the most beautiful scene. Um, I need to take off like, I think my earrings are like making noise by the microphone. Um Okay, but like about the whole like Gawker dismissal of it, it's just like so obvious. It's just like it's just like the thing that people say about abstract art, like, oh, I could have made that like a five year old could have made it. But like, you know what? You didn't write it. And like if you actually could write like a truly like honest, soul bearing 45 page long like essay about the time you had sex with an older guy write it and just put it online no one is fucking stopping you like all of the criticism about this seems so insane because anyone could have a thought catalog anyone could have a live journal anyone could have a tumblr the the thing is the you know some of the criticism i'm sure was authentic criticism but you know there is this sort of like silent politics that occurs in new york media that i think we sometimes get a glimpse of um maybe on twitter but it's like mostly like an unwritten history. And I mean, you know, people know that that Gawker like 
uh, very famously hated vice media. Um, but this extends to like, there's certain New York cliques that like these cliques belong to vice and these cliques belong to, to Gawker and alt lit belonged to vice. Um, so it's like all this signaling and counter signaling. Um, and I, so, you know, all that to say, I don't trust Hamilton Nolan's critique because I know it's not even coming from a place of like, he's genuinely critiquing the work. He's critiquing Marie Calloway, the proxy for Alt-Lit, the, you know, the shadow of Tao Lin. So, and furthermore, the the property of Vice Media, which of course, none of this is really true. I, I consider Tao Lin an artist in his own right. And I'm a, a huge fan of his, I'm a huge fan of Marie's and I hate to say it, I loved Vice. Um, so definitely, you know, thank God for Peter Thiel. <laughs> I mean, I loved Vice too. I wanted nothing more than a Vice.com boyfriend, you know, but. I mean, I, you know, I, my, my whole time in college, I wanted to, this, this was my, the, the thing about this story that's so special to me also is like, there, it, it was a, it was, it was a millennial dream. You write the personal essay that captures something real. Vice writes about you, you write for Vice and suddenly you're, you're a career media personality. And a lot of people did it. I mean, I think to some extent, like Gia Tolentino, who, you know, is a is a real writer and does produce great work. But like she she in some respect is someone who followed this path. A, a lot of people did. It was it was something that, you know, you had two you had two versions of it. You either worked for a Gawker property or a Vice property. And I mean, it's it's a sort of a dead aspiration. Yeah, I mean, she said that at the end of her essay about the personal essay boom being over, that like, that's how she started writing personal essays for free. And the thing with her, I don't know, her piece is a little bit about how like media in the 2000s was so exploitative because it got, you know, girls to write about their experiences for just, you know, a few hundred dollars a pop, if that. But I found this whole framing sort of um, a little bit like... um, like idiotic like I mean you're not really like your personhood is not really um a limited resource that like you can only mine so much of it and then you're out of it like for a certain type of personal essay sure like all you can write about is the time you had a cat like a hairball in your pussy or whatever which so what goes what remains I think almost unsaid in that piece and what I wish she just said outright is so she she mentions how you like get you know, a lot of people would become the object of ridicule, um, you know, would be trolled. But she does this in a sort of like politically neutral way. It wasn't just that people would get ridiculed. It's that they would be canceled, right? Like if you if you wrote something for, you know, Exo Jane, it happened to me that was a little bit off call and they didn't edit it, by the way, right? So you're just, you know, a lot of people are writing these like Adderall fueled essays that are probably embellished. They just get slapped up on, on Exo Jane thousands of people read it, you know, it's your, your name, your real name is then attached to, you know, a Gawker article, a million forum posts. And it's, it's like, this person is, you know, insert, insert slur here. Like they're a racist, they're not being racist as a slur, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Insert, you know, insert negative quality here. And after that, something like that happens to you, you don't want to write anymore. Like nobody edited it. No one told you, are you sure you want to write about your pussy and, and have it, you know, be ridiculed by the whole internet? Do you want, you know, like no one is, you know, no one's going to delete their tweet that quotes your full name. And then 
how do you go on to a writing career when someone wants to look at your clips, they Google your name, you can own it, you can lean into it, but most people don't have the fortitude. So I think that's what she meant. I didn't think that she meant that you run out of gas and like you only have so much personal fuel, right? I think she meant like you get, you know, you get flayed and then your name is ruined. Um, and now it's like for what, 50 bucks and a little, you know, a little bit of attention. It's not worth it. Yeah, but the people writing these were adults that had a decision to make. Yeah, they were adults, but they were often between like the ages of 18 and 23. And like, sure, that's an adult. But also like, imagine you are, you're up your own ass, you're 21 years old, you, you were raped, right? You write about your own rape and like, maybe a way that someone, you know, lots of people found offensive, or, you know, or like a friend dies or your father dies. And, you know, you just get, you get labeled as whatever, like, imagine, I, I understand what she's saying. I know that it's like you, at some point you have to take personal accountability on the one hand. On the other hand, it's like, this is why we have editors at major publications to prevent partially, you know, at least to prevent these kinds of like bizarre humiliation rituals. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think that like, a, like adults, you know, they, they're making the decision to publish that personal essay because they think that they're going to get something out of it. And, and sometimes you, sometimes you figure wrong, but like Marie Calloway, for example, I mean, she used a pseudonym, um, but she did get something out of, out of doing all of this. She got a lot of hate, but she also got, you know, a book deal when she was what, like 20? Um, I think she was 23. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, Taolin, successful writer. Um, sure, but you know, for for every one Marie Calloway and every one Taolin, there's you know, sixty people who wrote "My best friend died." You know, open parentheses, and it was a good thing. Close parentheses, like it, and like that was a very misunderstood piece. I understand why it made people very angry. It was it came off as very callous, but you like there's it's very hard to if you're not a writer right and you're not you don't work in media you're not a journalist you have no editor right and you're putting something so personal out there there are certain risks that I don't think um I don't think we're people were warned about at all um and I I I do think there was some sort of there there was some exploitation there even if it wasn't um you know as bad or as harrowing as Gia Tolentino painted it as you know one has to wonder like how many potential writing careers were like snuffed out when the person was like 19 because they wrote like a shitty personal essay for Exo Jane or Jezebel and they were you know like trolled off the internet or something I don't know maybe maybe agree to disagree about this one um you know do you think I should like be ashamed or worried about the personal essay that I'm going to publish next month? Well, no, because like, well, one, you're, you're, you know, this is something you wrote over several weeks that ostensibly will be edited, that you, you fought to get placement into like a pretty major publication. They have editors who are going to help you. Um, You've also published before you have a, you have a career. So, you know, if, if that one, right, has bad reception, then it's like, well, you know, it happens. Who can predict this kind of thing? But if you're like, you know, if you're writing about, um, you know, one of the essays uh, Gia references in your piece is like someone who 
didn't grow up knowing their biological father, meets their biological father, has very bizarre uh, sexual interlude with him. Um, you know, maybe it was raped, maybe it wasn't. It's a very personal piece that is sort of like, you know, posted on basically a slipshod blog post, right? Um, and then she, you know, she's, she got $50 and everyone knows her full name and that she, you know, was possibly raped by her biological father and she's mocked by it. She doesn't, you know, she probably didn't take the time or had anyone to help her like frame that in you know, a, a way that is intelligible to an audience. I mean, there's just, they, I, I just feel like there's such a difference between your piece, which was written with a lot of care and a lot of editing and will continue to have editing and is being placed in a major print publication and like being paid 50 bucks to like, you know, post your asshole on ExoJane. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, like with my essay, I think I, I am worried actually about using my name with it. Um, and I think that there's a reason that you and I use pseudonyms with this podcast, because I think that like no matter how um, no matter how mature you are, you're still putting yourself on the line when you're frankly a woman talking about her sex life like I hate to admit that something feminist is true but I think that Emily Gould might actually have been right when she was saying like Marie Calloway and all of these writers were just getting shit on because it's really threatening to like the idea of our society for a woman to talk openly about her fucked up sex life and you know I was thinking like my lover doesn't get nearly as much criticism about his work um as Marie Calloway did, or as frankly, like I do, like, you know, my experience, like, you know, a couple months ago, when I shared this essay in front of a crowd of his fans, his friends, and the the women in the audience, like the young women, um, were like, wow, you know, TPG is really intense, you're dating her, she seems crazy. And I was thinking about this sort of like, um, this hatred of Marie Calloway, I think, sort of, um, or from all the alt-lit people, really, sort of, like, comes from this uncomfortable, like, self-recognition. You know, like, these girls who hated my essay, you know, they're fans of of my my boyfriend, or, like, they work for him or whatever, and his work, you know, is, like, more ethically fucked than mine. Um, mine is um, not being made by a successful artist. It's being made by someone that looks like them, and it's kind of arguably more, like, I guess, uh, it's more uncomfortable to like see someone who's sort of like in an insecure position sort of be more open about their feelings of failure like I don't think that my lover really um seems like a failure or thinks of himself as a failure like quite as much as I do or like shows it as much you know when he's talking about his personal life and so I feel like these young women had to have to sort of like push me away and reject me because like if they call me crazy, then it's like fine. Then like all of their feelings of being crazy or a failure, or frankly, that they like me are attracted to my boyfriend because of his fame. Um, all of that can just be suppressed and they can go on being the good and pure person who's always doing the right thing. And people have such an investment of feeling that they're doing the right thing. And like Marie Calloway, like challenges this idea of like the purity of the young fan, like the purity and ingenuity um, and innocence of the young fan. Um, and like she also challenges the idea, as you said, of sex as being as sex as being either empowering or pure. Like she just leaves it as this like messy, like uh, terrain of, you know, power struggle and self-loathing and like occasional connection that's delicate. And, you know, like George Saunders wrote this beautiful thing in the introduction to his, his book, you know, recently on, on Russian literature, which is something like, you know, 
why is it that like all literature, all art is about this one thing, love that everyone wants. Um, but the moment anyone has love, like the moment anyone touches it, it like turns to shit. Like, how is it, you know, possible that like the one thing that you want, you can't have. And I, what I like so much about Adrian Brody is that there's no good outcome. Like there's no choice that either of them could have made at any turn that would have made this be like a happy story. Um, and it's just so, um, I mean, counter to the sort of, um, uh, as you said, like more moralistic turn that literature has taken over the last couple of years. I mean, yeah, you know, I, 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 speaking of beating a dead horse, I don't, I, I feel like this is sort of my talking point for everything. I think you're right um, that, you know, about why people are threatened by your work um, and why people are threatened by Marie's work. But I also think there's like, again, like a political air to it. Um, you know, it's like, you know, it, it's, it's fine if, someone with like a certain amount of fame or clout or success uh, shows certain personality traits. Um, but if, if some, you know, like not everyone can get away with every kind of behavior. Um, and I think it's, it's part, it's partially, it's partially tied to political forces. Like who are you seen as aligned with? Um, you know, what have you given us? What can we take from you? And if there's no like readily obvious, thing to that you know if, if you don't have a clear value add is what I'm saying your art won't won't just be evaluated on the, the, these neutral terms just as like if you do have a clear value add it's hard to trust criticism of your work because it's typically going to be in relation to what people see um as like you know how much fame you have or how much quiet you have or, or, or you know what have you yeah I mean I don't want to be too self-pitying I guess and like also you know my my, my boyfriend's work is, is, you know, like fantastic and like whatever clout he has, he, you know, earned over many years. Um, but I think it is true that like a certain type of maybe extreme aesthetic that both of us are into um, is more accepted in his work than it is in mine. Like it, it's more shocking, I guess, when it comes from me, but it also can be more easily dismissed as just something that a weird young girl is doing, you know, like some weird girl in her 20s. Um and the artistry of it can't really be seen. I mean, uh, I'm sort of forgetting the name. I, I think it was the Esquire piece about Marie Calloway. Um, let me just see if that was it. The Yeah, The New Bad Kids of Fiction by Stephen Marsh. Um, it's just like completely dismissing Taipei. It's not completely dismissing uh, Marie Calloway. Well, I thought um, that essay like fundamentally missed the point. I mean you know, this, this paragraph stood out to me. When you see Calloway's pieces gathered together, you recognize what this young woman has been doing, what her plan has been from the beginning, which it, which she has executed without error right to the end. She's been submitting herself to horrific sexual experiences in order to write about them. That's how much she cares about writing. That's how deeply she's willing to sacrifice to be an artist. I must say that I find this, whatever its motives, profoundly worthy of respect. I mean, that made me so angry. Like, she isn't like she isn't seeing John's or having bad sex with Adrian Brody to, you know, to, to write about it. Right. Like how could you so like none of her sexual encounters in her book or in her short stories published at the internet, you know, including, and especially Adrian Brody is about I'm fucking for the experience. And like, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure I said, how dare you out loud? <laughs> like what is wrong with this guy? 
I mean, I don't know. You know, like Marie Calloway, at some point in the book, she says, um, you know, I could never go into an experience knowing that I was going to write about it. And I don't know if I like entirely by that. Um, but I think that he misses the point when he portrays this as like a pure act of uh, performance art. I, I also thought he really missed the point when he's praising the language and, and what purpose did I serve in your life, her collection of stories. But then he says, the sexuality itself, at least to me, is utterly boring. But then again, I've never been turned on by the sight of a bruised tit. Certainly the taboo violations are old hat. There is nothing here that hasn't been explored in Belle de Jour or Story of the Eye. The men involved seem somewhat stupider and the internet is involved. I guess that's something new. And it's like, that's totally something new. Like, that's obviously something new. And also like, what? Like, the tab, like, first of all, like, you're going to be like dunking on her by saying that sadism has already been explored, but you're going to leave out like the literal Marquis de Sade or like, you know, masochism has been explored, but you're leading out like Von Massoc. Like, okay. Um, like, cool, cool dude. Like, you're the literary critic for Esquire. Nice one. <laughs> but like, I think there really like actually was something like quite new here and this sort of, yeah, this sort of like Aspergery like transparency and like documenting all of her feelings, which is something I'm noticing in um, like now that I'm like reading Tao Lin for the first time in like almost 10 years, um, like this sort of like bizarre, just sort of inventory of everything that he, that, that, you know, they're feeling at every moment and like remarking on like noticing that they're feeling a feeling, you know, like, like you reference, like when she feels that he's attractive for the first time, like that's like a moment in, in the story that in traditional fiction would just be like elided or uh, like represented through actions or the sort of like show don't tell advice that's always given um, in writing workshops. But here she sort of has this like slight clinical distance from like her own experience of life that allows her to be so analytical and insightful. And that's why all of these critics who were dismissing her and her, you know, quote unquote, shocking lack of self-awareness, like this is one of the most self-aware pieces of writing, you know, I've ever read. She's just aware of herself as being a possibly shitty person. And that's an incredible act. And like, I, I came to like love her for it, you know? Like I loved her and her her vulnerability and her sadness and her ba basically like inability to function, um, I, I thought was such a novel thing to be bearing. I So so I, I agree that it's new. I mean, I was also like stunned that um, people seemed to miss the obvious sort of influence that social media has on Marie's work and also Tao Lin's work. Um, you know, this this style of writing um, starts to become popularized when people are sort of like very assiduously like posting like every meal they eat and every feeling they feel on social media. Facebook is, you know, I am blank, right? And it's mm -hmm. a sort of joke, right? That like, especially boomers are like, you know, sharing everything and oversharing um, and they don't really know like the the... The, the boundaries of, of social media etiquette. And so are, you know, so are plenty of like unhinged young people. And then there comes this, this style of literature that's taking that and making it into art. And it's like, okay, if like my like bipolar mother is like going on, you know, a 4,000 word essay via her Facebook status, like, 
you know, in, in some respect, like that's embarrassing. And it's like embarrassing that she might like also be posting her lunch on Twitter or like whatever thing, but also like this could be a form of art. And it was like a re, a, you know, a reinterpretation and like a new understanding of, uh, you know, confessional literature that is so tied to the internet. And I didn't see, like, I didn't see one mention of that in any of these, the, any, I, they, they must have when writing about um, Taolin, but like in any, in any piece about Marie Calloway, they just said, it's like Aspergian, Asperger style of literature. They did not point out like, you know, when and why the style is, 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 you know, coming to life. Even Tumblr, people were like, were like oversharing. And it was, it was like, it was a well-known thing. It was considered, it was considered annoying or uncouth. Um, but, you know, Tao Lin and Marie Calloway took that and turned it into an art form. Totally. You know, you know, what's weird is like, um, you know, the last two years I was uh, TAing this creative writing class where students are supposed to write something, you know, often about their lives. I mean, it's pretty open whether you write fiction or nonfiction in that class. Um, and the students just, you know, almost always return in incredibly boring work. Um, and it's like, I feel like, I think, you know, I think, I think my boyfriend said this, I found it like very beautiful the way he put it, but it was something like the reason like bad art is so disturbing is because it seems to lower the human race, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it lowers your opinion of what humans are or can be to like read bad art, you know? And so my students kept turning in this sort of really empty stuff and I would just like push them like, you know, like everything was sort of like, I did, I did this, he did this, I did this, he did this, then I did that, whatever. Um, and I was just like, try writing about like the thing that you did wrong. Like try writing about the part where you had a feeling that surprised you. Like just try writing about the sort of, I don't know, like the sort of the stuff that doesn't fit into your idea of who you are, like who you want to be. Um, you know, Modest Mouse has this great lyric, like, I don't know who I am, but I know who I want to be you know, and I mean, both people know, know either. I mean, it, you know, it's so hard. It, it, we talk a lot about why it's so difficult for people to make decisions. And, you know, the sort of like well-worn explanation for this is, uh, you know, the tyranny of choice. But I think like another piece of this is people are so separated from like any order or structure that like, they literally do like in the most like literal base sense, they do not know what they are feeling moment to moment day to day. So of course they can't write about it because they they literally can't identify it. And the only way that it, you know, it becomes obvious is like through like very subconscious actions, like, or even like somatically. And I feel like this is a, I mean, why, you know, why is everyone suddenly chronically ill? I mean, perhaps it's, there's something in the water, there's something in the food, there's something in the mattresses, but also like people like literally have no idea like what is going on in their minds or their bodies. And I think that produces a lot of bad art. And thank God for Marie Calloway, who is at least able to to triumph over that and like identify what is going on, even if she still is sort of affectless. Yeah, I mean, totally. Like, um, I don't I don't think it's due to like a breakdown. I'm not sure this is what you were trying to say, like of social order, because I don't think that people like have ever really been aware of their feelings in any deep way, like at any time in history. Um, I'm still trying to detox from the, you know, people listening to this. Uh, thank you for your concern about my my Twitter account. I'm trying to detox from all this like, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> this like like 
oh, neoliberal neoliberalism is so bad kind of critiques, which is where shit like what I just said comes from. Um, the sort of <laughs> you know verso books kind of bullshit. I mean, I'm just I'm just trying to gently you know push you in another direction. Um, but like, um, I think it's true that people lie to I mean this is what we were kind of trying to get at in our Neil LeBute interview but people lie to themselves constantly like second to second and like how many relationships have gone on for you know 20 years without either person saying something vulnerable I mean like so many of even my closest friends you know even default oh shit you're still there like I feel like I can't like say how I really feel to like but it's sad, like the, like the people closest to me, I feel like I'm constantly lying to them. And, you know, this is like an experience, you know, sort of a definitive experience for me was like a couple of years ago when I was in Amsterdam and I got really high with like, you know, my closest friend. And I just started to feel like the, you know, myriad ways that I like misrepresented myself to her on like a moment to moment basis. That like I, I had to play this sort of role of like the funny manic, you know, friend with her. Um and I, I couldn't be honest with her. And like maybe the only people I could be honest with were, were in my family. But like, you know, the longer I was away from the, you know, the homestead, the harder that was going to be. And like it was just I was at this total disconnect from like anyone in my life. And like I feel like I need so much this like total closeness and, and fusion that's um, impossible. But it's also what everyone wants in love. And like, oh, my God, to so the end of the story just devastated me when she you know, Marie Calloway, like, says to him something like, I feel like when I'm talking with you, I can talk like, um, like the way I write and the way I think in my head, you know, do you feel that way? Have you ever met someone like you? And he's like, no, just you, but I don't know what it means. And it's like, I mean, the heartbreaking thing about that is he does know what it means. And he's, you know, he probably, you probably... I wouldn't be surprised if like to this day he like occasionally thought of her, you know, assuming this story is, you know, is true. And assuming he did say that, you know, whichever man has said that to a woman, I think like what they're saying is genuine. It's just that some other factor, whether it's like status or, you know, like, you know, whatever it is that's preventing them uh, from forming a relationship with that person uh, forces them to deny that like deeper emotional quality. Like my, if, if my mom read this story, she would say, you know, she would be very cynical. She would say he felt nothing towards her. Um, it was all a lie. He, he was there because he wanted to fuck, but I don't, you know, I don't believe that. I think what's even more heartbreaking is like men do feel emotional. It's just that they're often pulled in other directions by superficial things. Like it's not his feelings towards Marie aren't what's, what's superficial. It's everything else. I mean, I, I actually, I read it differently. I read it as just, you know, he's too old for her. And more importantly, he has a girlfriend of several years. Like they can't be together because she's the other woman, you know, and I've been the other woman so many times. And it's this interesting sort of ethical situation to be in. Like, you know, when I was in France um, for the first time, I was dating this Italian guy who just constantly cheated on his girlfriend. And I remember him. Yeah. And I, you know, 
I, we, I felt very like connected with him the first, I don't know, two times that I saw him. I mean, partly, and I'm sure it was a similar thing with Marie as well, like, because he fit into my idea of like myself in Paris, like he was, you know, like beautiful and, and like, you know, tall and dark and handsome and like a graduate student at, you know, a great school, interesting field, whatever, like, you know, European, um, you know, head ground, round glasses um, and accent, you know. And I wanted to be his girlfriend, like him as an individual and him as an idea. And the, and I just couldn't be because he had a girlfriend and I couldn't handle it. Like, you know, I remember him writing me this sort of per, poorly written email in English, you know, a couple of weeks into knowing each other that said, I don't think it do you no good see me, like canceling and going to the movies with me that afternoon. And then I, I didn't see him for a while and it just totally broke my heart. And, you know, the last time I saw him, he said, uh, before I left Paris, he said something like, I wish that I could never see you again. And I was, or I wish that I could never talk to you again. And I was like, what? And he was like, you know, because I know that this relationship will just continue in this sort of, you know, like adulterated fashion. Like, you know, we talk over Skype a little bit. We talk over Facebook a little bit, but like, wouldn't it be better if it could just be like, cabin to this and I don't know like these moments of I'll say one thing maybe this is a little bit like cynical or something but I think it, it comes up in the story as well like um or in Marie Calloway's other fiction too like um it's when you know that there's no future like it's pretty it's sometimes a lot easier to form a connection like in this sort of fatalistic like all or nothing mode and it, it's it's hypnotic and capturing it is hard. I, I think I think a lot of people um, are afraid of afraid of intimacy, and it, yeah, I, I I mean I, I I totally agree with that. I, but I mean there there's also part of me that like really really believes that like you could love the other woman more than you love your girlfriend, your wife, and like that is such a tragedy, and like that love is like is real, but you know maybe faded. I don't know, maybe I, my, this is an argument I get into with my mom all the time. Um, you know, like we're always watching like rom-coms together or whatever. And she, she's, she's always quoting when Harry met Sally, but I, I, I really think that like, perhaps in all cases, there are serial cheaters and there are men who will always cheat. But I do feel like sometimes like it does happen where like, maybe you are even serially cheating and then you, you meet someone who you form a real connection with. And it's really just these external things that tie you down that prevent that love from like really growing although you know again to, to to call back to what you were saying you know towards towards the end of, you know the end of your 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 piece like yeah I mean I, I agree sometimes people it's it's the fact that it can never fully come to fruition that attracts you and that allows you to create a dream and allows you to make that person your Beatrice but I don't I don't think that's always the case maybe I'm I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I, I'm super naive. Sure. I mean, sometimes people, a famous example comes to mind, but with no names or images attached. Like <laughs> um, sometimes the guy leaves his wife and has a beautiful future with a much younger woman. Um, sometimes, sometimes it happens. Sometimes it's the right thing. I remember this like a uh, gender neutral person who thought that Was I too. Really a gender what? neutral person? Or is for the sake of the, the story? I know. This is, I, I think, gender-neutral person um, who was trying to, like, recruit me into the 
the gay club at, at school because I wore, you know, red wing boots or whatever. Um, <laughs> like telling, you know, trying to recruit me into the gay club, like as I was reeling from like a breakup with like my boyfriend of a, of a while. And, you know, this person was telling me that like all breakups are good. Like you should celebrate all breakups. Like there's a reason you broke up, you know, it's great. Like you got a load off. And, but, you know, an interesting question in this also is the, the home wrecking question. Like, I think my, you know, my, my lover's ex, she gets a lot of hate for being a home wrecker, which in a, in a way she was, you know, like she did, you know, send him this like very flirty fan video while he was married. Like, but it's like, oh, there, there's, to me, there's no such thing as home wrecking because if your spouse, like, if your spouse is willing to fuck someone else, then it's like, you know, who's who's wrecking the home? Your spouse or the person who dared to have a boner for them? You know, something he says is like, first of all, he didn't cheat. But second of all, like, a healthy relationship is not going to get disrupted by, like, another person hitting on the person, right? Like, I mean, I guess it goes into this sort of, like, patriarchal idea um, that, you know, your husband is always at risk of running away and you need to make sure that he doesn't have, like, the stimulant so that you can corral him. Uh, I say um, disbelieving every word that comes out of my mouth. Um, yeah, we need to cut this part. Uh, <laughs> but No way, bitch. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, look, I, my feeling on it is that it's, you know, it's not the right thing to do to, to hit on a married person or to make yourself available to a married person, but that's, I mean, that's all you're doing. You're making yourself available. You're not raping them, right? Like if, if they, if, you know, a married person, man or woman chooses to cheat, they're choosing to cheat. It is not, you know, you have every right to be angry with the person they cheated with, but you have to ask yourself why was it so easy uh, to convince my spouse to stray? Perhaps they didn't need to be convinced. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. Like he says in this story, you know, um, you know, of course I love my girlfriend and she loves me. I'm just bored. I, I mean, I think they stayed together. So after the story was published, the girlfriend writes into the hairpin. Yeah, <laughs> read the story and then wrote to the hairpin and was like, uh, I think my boyfriend cheated on me with Marie Calloway. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't think, I don't think it was actually the girlfriend. To be honest, I think it was like they needed to grapple with this question, and for some reason, did it in the format of an advice column. You don't think it was real? No, I think it was sort of like a hypothetical of like there is this third character that's never really addressed. You know, what could she possibly be thinking? Why do you think it's fake? I mean, just, I mean, just think about who would do that. Why did they take it down? You all right, girl? Yeah, you just kind of like shot down like the uh, train of thought that I was on. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit tipsy. <laughs> yeah. Shit. Um, okay, let me look at my list of like notes to see if there's like anything. Oh, you know what I liked about this story also is like she keeps saying these things a couple times to him, like 
guys like you are really into girls being on top. Guys like you are into videos of girls masturbating. And it's like this sort of like provocative and like dismissive um, sort of negging of him almost. But it's like she's like objectifying him, I guess, or classifying him like probably more than he's actually classifying her like she wants to be treated as an object and she says to him that thing like are you really into young hipster girls and he's like um no I'm like not really <laughs> um and and then when he's like face fucking her she's like I really enjoyed it I love being treated like an object and like she's very open also about how she's doing all of these sexual things like to appeal to the guy. Like in this essay where she, in a different essay, you know, where she's talking about losing her virginity, she says that like afterwards she sort of scoots away from the guy in bed because she's heard that men don't like cuddling after sex. And then he like turns around and starts spooning her. Um, And I just thought that there was something so like weird and like honest about her just kind of like saying I mean like cat person was going in this direction too but not as far like about how like the woman in bed is turned on by the other guy finding her attractive and like the things that she does in bed like cannot be like considered like quote-unquote like of her free will or like quote-unquote like what she wanted um like they're part of this like circuitry of like appealing uh to men and being like turned on by the thought of herself as attractive to men um I, I don't know I just I was so like um, I just kept writing great in the margin. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder, I wonder sort of where this like objectification of men comes from. Like in, in Marie's writing, like my, at, you know, at first blush, I feel like they, like women, myself included, sort of like defensively objectify men as like, uh, you know, a symptom of anxiety, like not really knowing what to do. So like, trying to put them in a box with like other similar experiences but I wonder if like it is also just like this function of like you are maybe like less attracted to the person than you are attracted to the situation or like the concepts like inherent in the situation like you were mentioning like um you know you're you're turned on by the fact you're attracted to to this guy rather than the fact that you're turned on by this guy yeah, like you're turned on by the idea of yourself like being in, you know, like it's sort of like how how both of us, I think, I think we talked about this on a on an earlier episode, embarrassingly, like are sort of turned on by the idea of a dirtbag leftist, like having sex with a dirtbag leftist. And, yeah. yeah, I remember that you specifically said that. No, 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 absolutely not. I'm not, I, when I was saying like someone who's sort of like, I, I am like, vi- I'm not gonna say I'm turned on, but I, I find myself inexplicably attracted to like Euro trash, but not like a dirtbag left. No way. When I say dirtbag, I mean like some dude from like, you know, like a suburb of like, or not even a suburb, just like who lives in like low income housing or like grew up in low income housing in like Moscow or Dublin or something. And like, <laughs> it's just, you know, like wears tracksuits and has bad tattoos. Like when I say dirtbag, that's what I mean. Or like, you know, like a guy you, you like meet in like the corner of like a Berlin nightclub who just like, just like looks and feels abject and like maybe he slips something into your drink right like that's that's what I'm talking about like not a you know not some hipster in Greenpoint or whatever (laughs) no way oh 
Well, I I sort of can be more turned on by the idea of having sex with a hipster in Greenpoint. Sorry. Um, But like, you know, I remember like with my ex, you kind of like looked like a dirtbag leftist and like, I guess in some respects sort of like was one, except that he also made, you know, $200,000 a year. Um, Like, I remember I used to sometimes get turned on by the thought of fucking this like chubby guy with this like big gross beard. Um, Yeah. And like, I think that, you know, a lot of women, like, especially when they're fucking, like, much older artists or, like, um, I would surmise through no personal experience of my own, are, like, turned on by the thought of themselves being, like, the sexy young thing in this guy's apartment. And, like, they want to be objectified. Um, they want to be put in the category uh, of the young girl. Like, they want the other person also to be in that role. Like, you know, I have a friend who... Um, is dating a 40 year old, you know, like in this story. And she told me that sometimes while she's having sex with him, she'll just think to herself, he's 40. And that'll like get her so turned on, you know. Um, And I don't think that's something that like, that's definitely not something that like a sort of like Aziz Ansari is a, is a rapist, like narrative can accommodate the idea that you can get turned on like in a perverse way by the fact that the other person isn't attractive or like isn't conventionally attractive. Um, just the fact that sex is complicated is something that people are so like unwilling to admit because it makes it harder um, to, you know, play the victim, play the loser, like whatever. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, Recalway just like goes there. I, I mean, this made me think a lot about like my sort of flirtation with that um that artsy filmmaker, like a couple, you know, a while back, right? Like, um he, I mean, he was married. Like, how the fuck was I supposed to feel about that? Like, does that make me a bad person? Is that like my responsibility that he was married? Like was I supposed to talk to him about it? I mean, I feel a little bit like I was a bad person for trying to, you know, you could say like get a married guy to cheat on his wife with me. Um, But isn't it his responsibility for like how, you know, but I was confrontational with him too. Like when I first met him, I said to him, like, are you trying to do some sort of like indie Harvey Weinstein thing? What the fuck did I say that? I mean, I think there's a thrill in sort of like, you know, seeing how far you can push the envelope. I, you know, I, I do think, like, you know, like, obviously, I think we're gonna get comments on this episode, where people are like, you know, of course, it's wrong. Of, and of course, it's also the other person's responsibility. And, you know, I agree. I, I agree. It, it's not, um, it's, it's not ethical to, to cheat on your partner, or to tempt someone else to cheat. But it's, it's, a, it's a two way street. And I don't, agree with the disproportionate you know blame that I feel like um the 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 other woman the other man tend to get I mean really you know the the other man is always sort of invisible the other woman however is like very frequently seen as a whore and I I don't think that's I you know it it, it's just we we like to think of ourselves as having that much power but we don't really um it's a, it's a very rare thing, I think, for, oh, you know, a, a woman to have that much power over a man. And I think it's just, it, I mean, it's, it's a fantasy that women can destroy lives like this. And it's a convenient one. But I mean, it's my it's my main gripe with like the manosphere and, you know, incel takes. But it's also like a gripe I have with just like mainstream opinions on infidelity. It's like, you 
you can say no. It's not that, and it's in fact not that hard to say no either. Like, why would it be hard? All right, let's see this thing. Still says micro no, but I think it's correct. We've been experiencing technical difficulties. All right, I think that might be a sign from God, maybe. Um, are there any writers today that like you feel like are carrying on the torch of Marie Calloway? Um, if there are, I don't, I don't know who they are. Um. I I think that I find myself like getting, you know, becoming very disappointed by writers or like meeting people who I assume would be talented. And then I like look at their Instagram or something and it's like some very like, you know, sanitized political statement. Um, and, you know, I say all this like not, you know, not to suggest like the aims of sort of like the liberal agenda are, you know, totally off base or whatever. Like I'm, you know, obviously very pro like just like you know the project of civil rights but I just find it like uh, it's like a it's, a it's a red flag to me when I'm you know when I meet a filmmaker or a writer or something and then like I follow them on social and it's all like you know corporate pride image macros or whatever I mean I think that that's just sort of like a thing that people feel like they have to do now to kind of like get ahead any amount at all Um, Although I think that, you know, I was at this screening the other day and this guy showed this um, film of his about um, this sort of like weird country guy who does weird like sort of like cowboy porn. Um, And he was accused by some women of like, I don't know, unclear if it was like harassment or rape or whatever. But basically his film got into, you know, like New York Film Festival, stuff like that. Um, But then it got pulled because like the women complained about it. and he was saying that it seemed like so, you know, ludicrous for this to be happening to him. Um, but that he also felt like maybe this sort of like woke overreaction, um, you know, it seems like people are less invested in it post-COVID. Um, that, that being said, I mean, I think the thing that Marie's doing, like, isn't even like just a question of like wokeness or unwokeness. It's just like being willing to like be a loser in public or like post your L's in public. Like, you know, when she emails the older writer and is like, here's my writing, Taolin, like my stories, you know, people aren't going to say that now. They'd be like posted on, you know, women posting their L's and humiliated in public. And now there seems to be this really cruel culture of just like dunking on people for being vulnerable. Um, that makes good personal writing impossible. I mean, I hate the the sort of like countercultural uh, line of thought that's like, well, don't be vulnerable in public as sort of like, you know, this knee-jerk reaction to the mainstream, uh, you know, bastardizing the like Marie Calloway genre of art. Um, you know, I think there's a real like, I think like what counterculture we do have is very reactionary. And, um, you know, I say this practically on every episode and they do, um, they do frown up, they do frown upon emotional, emotional vulnerability because emotional vulnerability has been automatically like siloed in with, uh, you know, like Sephora selling self-care kits and Instagram posts about, you know, whatever, like, astrological social justice issue or you know like whatever the fuck's going on right like it's you know so it's like it's it's like there's literally like no venue to just like be honest about how you're really feeling or to like talk about something dark or embarrassing right totally like I mean not to like name any names but like you know women who are like you know do like you know 
leftist cultural commentary are not going to be out there talking in much detail at all about, you know, the humiliations of their actual personal lives, which are, you know, like myriad and interesting and endearing. Instead, they're going to present like a hard outer intellectual image. And, you know, like, you know, at a, at a large level, I guess this is just like, a you know, a patriarchal idea, like whatever. But I mean, it's obviously something that impacts men as well. I mean, like the point in the story where the older guy says to her when they're at their beach, I just want you to hold me now, you know, that's kind of what everyone wants, but no one's allowed to say it. It's, it's humiliating and it's embarrassing. And we're only like allowed to really talk about our feelings as representative of the feelings of a group. And like the individual is such like a messy, dirty, um, uncomfortable thing that you just need to, uh, to suppress it. Um, right. It's obscene. Yeah, um, I, 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 I total, I totally agree with you. Um, I think it's, it's, it's completely, it's completely frowned upon unless it serves some kind of agenda. Um, and you know, again, like not to mention any names. Like I do think, like the reason that that you know women like that or women who like you know fall into that category don't speak honestly about their lives is because. Like one, the counterculture sort of forbids it, but two, like you know, people t- people take any any shred of vulnerability and tear it apart like they're like rabid wolves. I mean, you know, I like I'm aware of the existence of lol cow. I've seen how they talk about people. It's like uh, on one hand, it's like you know interesting because everyone loves gossip and like this sort of bad behavior has always existed. You know, um, there's lipstick alley. Like there there's all you know, all, all all manner of of gossip forums, but like it's, I mean, it's just so it's so cruel, um, and it I I think that on both sides of the aisle we like pathologize and vilify, uh, you know, being honest about how we really feel, and like furthermore, like the mainstream position is sort of like, um, every feeling you have should be taken at face value, and like if it is somehow against the party line or like whatever, or it's, you know, seen as problematic somehow, it can and should and will be attached to you for life and will be used to ruin your reputation. Totally. And like, I mean, I'm aware that there are people that think that it's weird or um, pathetic or uncomfortable that I, you know, especially, but both of us, you know, talk about our sort of personal humiliations and sex lives and whatever, um on this podcast like it does not escape my attention that it's an unusual and unseemly thing to be doing I've heard um but you know I think about like a lot of these people you know sort of like a you know damned if you do damned if you don't like I I think about you know a lot of these sort of public figures that like I have sort of like you know weird gossip on um it makes me like them so much more like to know about how fucked up they are like in their private lives. And I just, you know, feel like, you know, we need more like mercy in our society, right? And like, if we we could all be like open about our pain, we would have more, I don't know, mercy on each other. Um, and, but we can't, right? Because people are just sort of like hyenas, um, especially online. And, you know, everyone you know, positions themselves as totally above any sort of like human foible. So. Yeah. I, I, you know, again, it it won't be the first time I say this on this podcast and it won't be the last. Um, 
as much as I think the sort of Silicon Valley like affectation of like, you know, being overly sincere is extremely grating. And, you know, <laughs> I'll, uh, you know, I'll talk shit about it. Sure. Uh, what's <laughs> even worse than that um, to me is just the irony poisoned, like, you know, you can't even just like enjoy a movie, right? Like it's just every fucking thing you do is just like, like, you know, even, even like being normal is sort of like done in this like smug way, like watching a film, going outside and enjoying the sunshine. I mean, it's, it's on, you know, it's, it's certainly something that's symptomatic of being online too much, but I see it in just like any kind of like non-normie person out in the world. And I'm just like, I mean, that's it. That's that sound effect. That's all I've got to say. (laughs) Well, um, I gotta, I gotta wrap up for the, for the evening. I I hope that this recorded. (laughs) I hope so too. I think you said a lot of good stuff. Um, and you know what? I, I'm not, I'm not going to jump off a skyscraper or a bridge. I'm going to go outside and enjoy, uh, the remaining sunshine of the day. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go read some Taolin. How about that? Fuck yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. Cautious young Miss Calloway impressed some person's pants away. His clever conversation started from a magazine. To plug it down to all and sundry as a humble understanding challenged a great actor for his hatred of the queen. Perhaps I lack a sense of humor, but your interesting romance sketches me as dead.